others who are gathered with us either in person or here online it is good to be gathering together again on this lord's day to be able to sing to our father and to pray and to worship in many ways and also to look into his word which is what we're going to do now we've just finished a little three-week mini-series looking into the formation of the church by jesus in matthew 16 and if you don't stop to think about it it is actually very easy to take the existence of the church for granted both historically and personally the whole world has to some degree for 2000 years the church just is it always has been and if you look around in a global and historical perspective it shows no signs of going away at all in fact it springs up and it thrives in the very places where it's most oppressed Entire nations have deliberately tried to erase the church, and yet in the midst of that persecution, millions upon millions more come to proclaim Jesus as king and join his ecclesia. Which is no surprise, because Jesus told his disciples, as we've just reviewed in the last few weeks, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. His disciples didn't even know that Jesus had come to build a church an ecclesia, a people who are called out and gathered as citizens. But there he just said it, and then the disciples found themselves participating in it and watching it happen. Year after year, decade after decade, and century after century, the church has been built on the rock of knowing Jesus as the Son of God, and nothing has withstood it. Sometimes the church has grown from prison cells and even from guillotines and gallows. But the reality is, where there was once only 11 disciples and one traitor, there has risen a church of billions. So that was good to remember. That was refreshing, especially right now, to be reminded that despite all appearances, very locally and very personally, that the church seems to be diminishing, perhaps it's even been diminishing in your own life, we know that the church will not fail, nor should we ever abandon it because the church is the means by which the gospel will prevail in the world. The church is the people of God, and the church is the body of Christ. And yet it is easy to take church for granted, or it's easy perhaps to see church diminish in our life. So if church has been shrinking in our lives, if the gathering of Jesus's people is under some pressure, and it's been difficult to participate in it, then what we should do perhaps is remind ourselves of how we are meant to engage with the church. What is the church all about as it relates to me personally? And how do I know that I'm one of those living stones that Peter talks about Christ building his church with? Living stones that are cemented together with all the other stones. And how do I make sure in my life I'm not one of those living stones that's jumping off of the wall and creating gaps? So what does it look like to lean into the church and see the church grow in Halliburton, even as by all rights it should shrink? A few years ago, we approached this topic by outlining what I call the five ones of Christian engagement with the church and the body of Christ. And they're not everything that a Christian is and does, but the five ones embody some core biblical principles of how Christians are the church and fulfill the purposes of the church and fulfill the purposes of the Christian life. So we're gonna do a little series now on the five ones, the first one being worship. The five ones that we can find in scripture and that have been reflected faithfully in the church for over 2000 years are one gathering for worship, one time for prayer, one group for discipleship, one ministry for service, and one friend for Christ. 
I like five. I have five fingers, and so it's easy to remember on one hand. And I think if I get these five really strong, then God can always show me more. But these are five good basics to make sure I have under my belt, to make sure I'm participating in God's church the way that he intends in his scripture. So first we're gonna look at worship. Why is worship number one on the list? Why is it so central to our being the living church? Why do we gather here on Sundays, specifically gathering as people? What are we doing here? Let's consider today worship and its role in the church. Let's pray. Father God, I just give you thanks for your word. And as we look at, into your word and at various scriptures and contemplate what you've taught us about worship, Lord, help cement in our hearts the importance of the gathering, of the ecclesia, that this is not something that's optional, that this is something that is crucial to our own journey as Christians, to our own life as Christians, but also crucial to the salvation of the world. It's important that we worship together. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing I want to look at is just the reality that God is worthy of worship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, you've probably heard it before, is what is the chief end of man? Or what is man's chief purpose, primary purpose? And the answer to question one is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We have to understand that worship and that gathering to worship God is primary to our chief end and to our purpose. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so worship is primarily a response to our satisfaction in God. God doesn't demand of us anything except that we pursue our greatest joy, and our greatest joy is found in Him, our Creator. The fastest way to take church for granted, or the fastest way to diminish church and see it reduced to something that's merely materialistic and no longer holy and purposeful, is to make church about us rather than about God. So the first thing we look at here is to recognize that church and worship specifically is about God. God has created us and ordered us such that the most joyful and healthy thing for us is to be fully satisfied in and therefore worship him. God gets the greatest glory when he is our greatest satisfaction. And to the degree that we are satisfied by other things is the degree to which we lessen our worship and our glory in God. John Piper has a great analogy of this that I've used before, and I'll just say it again here because it pictures, not perfectly, but it pictures very well the idea behind God receiving glory and us receiving satisfaction in his worship. Piper's analogy basically says it this way. Imagine if there was a pure, clean, refreshing mountain stream. What is the way in which we would give glory to that stream, to that spring or to that stream? It would be by drinking deeply from it. The stream is most honored by our satisfaction in its coolness and its thirst quenching nature, by our joy in partaking of it above all other streams, above all other satisfactions or distractions. And if the stream 
knows that it is the healthiest and most satisfying thing for you in the world, then it would not be arrogant for the stream to say, drink from me. It would not be wrong that the stream desires that we drink from it and be satisfied in it. That would be the most loving thing the stream could do because the stream knows that it is better than any other satisfaction. If on the other hand the stream said, no, no, don't drink me, don't partake in me, you'd better go drink from that sewer pipe over there because, you know, these other things, these other muddy ponds are better than I am. That would be both a lie about reality and it would also be unloving towards us. God looks at us the same way and says, drink from me, be satisfied in me. I am the best thing for you. And for me to deny that and tell you to go get satisfaction somewhere else would be both a lie and it would be unloving. So God looks on his children and he says, listen to my words, heed my warnings, treasure my ways, find your satisfaction in my love. Everything else you chase after is infinitely less satisfying than me. I don't need you to feel good about me, God says. I'm God, by the way, but I do love you and you will die without me. And so this is why worship is primary to our chief end and to our purpose and why worship is so important to God's love for us. He desires that we would not be distracted, that we would not be taken captive by anything less than what is perfect for us, which is him. And this is the heart of worship, knowing that God is our greatest treasure and to worship anything else more highly than God is not only unjust, but it produces less joy and less satisfaction in us. And so if we make church primarily about ourselves and not primarily about God, then all we do is diminish and undermine the value of church. And then it's very easy to stay away. Church becomes nothing that special because it's no longer about God, it's about us or what we get from it. And when that happens, church is diminished and it's easy to be taken for granted. So primarily, the first point is, is just that we remember, and I can't really stress this enough as I move on to more practical things about church and worship, that it's primarily about God, it's not primarily about us. But then why do we worship on Sunday? Why do we gather together? What is the importance of the gathering? And so I just wanna quickly do a quick survey of the patterns of worship that we find in scripture. And the reality is that God from the very beginning intended to gather himself a Peter. He chose Abraham and told Abraham that he was going to make a great nation and that nation would be set apart from the other nations, that they would be identifiable and that they would be identifiable as a nation that worships him. But then as that nation worships, we have examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we have biblical examples in the Old Testament of Sabbaths, and they were used to praise God after certain events. We see the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15 after their exodus from Egypt and their rescuing. The people gathered together as a nation of Israel regularly to celebrate. We see that in the feasts uh, that are put throughout the calendar year. Uh, of the nation of Israel. God called them to gather at his tabernacle, to gather at his tent, to gather at his temple in order to feast and to celebrate. People gathered to confess and to worship. 
in Leviticus 23, in Numbers 28 to 29, God established a tent of meeting where he resided and he gathered his people together to be in his presence and to confess and to worship to him. To celebrate, 2 Samuel 6, 5 says that as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, as Jamie just read to us. So we see that if you look through the Old Testament, just in a quick survey, you see that the church or the people of God has always been about gathering together to confess, to worship, to celebrate, to bring praise. And then in the New Testament, we see this pattern continue as Jesus has said he's going to build his church and he's going to build this ecclesia, call this people out. In the New Testament, we see that this started to take place on Sundays, on uh, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose on the first day. And on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb uh, to find it empty. And so the early church chose the first day of the week as the time to gather, uh, to worship, and to uh, praise what Jesus had done. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the first day in Acts 2.1. And we find the practices of or the early church in Acts 20 verse 7 was to break bread together uh, or to gather together in groups and to have meals together on that first day of the week. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, it says that on the first day of the week, they took up a collection while they were gathered, and that there was teaching that took place as they shared with one another. And it's called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1:10. And we know from Christian practice, even um, beyond the time of the New Testament, in like 90 AD and 100 AD, it says, but every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving af- after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice of praise and service is what they're talking about there, may be pure. And that's, been, that's written down uh, in an early church handbook applying the apostles' teaching called the Dadachi. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the early church uh, formation, in the early church apostolic church of the New Testament and beyond, we see this gathering together in order to worship. So what is the importance of worship as gathering? Why do we gather? And I just want to cover uh, four or five, quickly, four or five things that are important as to why we gather. First of all, we gather to glorify God. God is the most important audience in our worship together, as we talked about earlier. He's worthy of worship, and he's the most important person who is present. The church is the earthly shadow of God's heavenly kingdom, and therefore, What we are doing when we gather to worship God is we are reflecting on earth what is to come in heaven. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we have in Revelation a picture of heaven to come. And it is people from every tribe and nation who are gathered together to give glory to God. And so when we gather as the church on the first day of the week and we sing and we worship our God, we are picturing as a shadow the great true worship that is to come in heaven. Our attention is on God and on his throne, sovereign and ruling, that we are citizens of his kingdom. 
And so we're experiencing a foretaste of what is to come. And our worship gatherings reflect the multi-tribe, multi-ethnic, multi-class gathering of all of God's people. Tantalizing because what is, is good, but what is to come is so much more. And we only experience that kind of worship of God in gathering corporately together. We don't experience it the way God would intend us to any other way. We don't experience it on a golf course or in our garden as some say they worship. That may be worshipful and it should be worshipful, but it's not the primary kind of worship that God has called us to. So first, the importance of the gathering in worship is to glorify God. But secondly, gathering allows us to edify God's people through the ordinary means of grace. And this is so important. I don't want you to miss this. We have to remember that God accomplishes his purposes through means or by methods. And the ordinary means that God uses to extend gracious transformation in our lives are things like song and prayer and teaching and his word and the ordinances of baptism and communion. In other words, all of the things that we do in church are meant for our profit, for our encouragement, for our edification, to use a biblical term. That means our gathering together in church are filled with God's ordinary means of accomplishing the things that he promises. And so when people ask, how do I receive the grace of God? How am I purified? How do I find peace? Where do I have my burdens lifted? How is my mind transformed? How can my heart be satisfied in Jesus? Where do I hear God's voice? How do I receive the promises of God? Most of those questions are answered by the means of grace God has given us, which is gathering as the church for worship. It's in song, it's in prayer, it's in the body of Christ, literally the brothers and sisters that are around us. Those are the means by which God provides his grace. Acts 2 verse 42 says it this way, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. In 1 Corinthians 14, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And so central to this uplifting knowledge is the preaching of God's word through careful and hopefully spirit-filled unpacking of scripture. That's why we preach on Sunday mornings. And this is supported by preparation and, and, and singing and responsive corporate prayer and communion and fellowship. And a lot of that is done in the large gathering of the church on Sunday morning, but it's also done a little more intimately in your life group gatherings. When you gather to break bread or to pray and to sing and to look into God's word together and where you share your teaching and your learning and your prayers and your revelations with others. Without gathering for worship, it is very hard to gain access to these means of grace by which God intends to fully pour his love into and to satisfy you. If you spend weeks or months away from church or away from your life group, then it will not be surprising to you that your walk with God has suffered, that you do not have evident in your life all the promises that God has made to you, that you are searching for answers from God that you are not receiving because you've distanced yourself from the primary means by which he means to extend his grace.
You've not availed yourself of these things through the body of Christ. Thirdly, we gather to remember the gospel. So first, we gather to worship God. Second, we gather to edify God's people through the ordinary means of grace. And thirdly, we gather to remember the gospel. The teaching of the apostles that was done in the church was primarily the gospel. Paul says in Galatians, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that Paul taught. Or John in 1 John says, as he communicates to his brothers and sisters in Christ, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and then was made manifest or become, literally became man with us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you can have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul and John and Peter, as you go through the New Testament, you see that they gathered people together. They founded churches. The people gathered around them primarily to reflect on and to remember the teaching of the gospel. Worship that we experience is only possible because Jesus came, lived, and died, and rose to save sinners such as us. Jesus said to his disciples, the rock the church will be built on is this knowledge of me as the Son of God. So in other words, the, the, gospel, the church is built on the gospel. And so every Sunday is a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. It's an opportunity to look around at brothers and sisters exactly like ourselves who are only here because of what Jesus did to rescue them. The first series I did here seven years ago, it might have even been the first sermon that I actually preached. I called all of you people a bag of mixed nuts. And seven years later, I stand by my observation. That's the reality of the church. We are a bag of mixed nuts. We are a bag of broken people. We are a group of people who needed to be rescued by Jesus. And we gather together to remind ourselves of the goodness and the hope of the gospel. It's important that we gather for worship to see what the gospel has accomplished in people's lives and to share and give testimony to what the gospel is doing in our lives. Fourthly, we gather to proclaim the gospel, not just to remind ourselves of the gospel, but to proclaim the gospel. Even though corporate worship together is primarily for God's family and it's not meant or designed primarily for unbelievers, they're not the audience that we are aiming at. Our audience is God and our satisfaction is in God and our purpose is to exhibit the grace of God and build one another up. But it's not an accident that these public worship gatherings include outsiders. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, But if all or everyone prophesies, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. That's just a little snippet out of 1 Corinthians 14, which is an amazing chapter on what church is about and what it's not about. But Paul is basically saying, if everybody is here as a testimony, of what the gospel has done in their life and an outsider or an unbeliever happens to be present, then they're going to be convicted and they're going to be called into account by what they hear. 
And so we're pleased to have visitors every Sunday, some who are not believers, who may even be here only under protest, but they are here and gathered in worship and it's a proclamation of the gospel to them. It speaks transparently of our love for God and our dependence on the good news of his son when we gather together for worship. That doesn't happen like that any other way. Fifthly, we are gathered to sing. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Here at Lakeside, we are blessed with some fantastic music leaders and music team members here at this church. Not only are they fantastic musically, but also spiritually and theologically mature people. We don't choose any song that we sing lightly and we pass over and we discard a lot of music that simply isn't theologically accurate or properly expresses the gospel. Both old hymns and new choruses, because old hymns can be wrong and new choruses can be right. And we pick and choose from all of them in a very certain way. The songs we sing both praise God and preach to our own hearts. And so the lyrics we sing on Sunday morning can be hummed and rehearsed through the week as reminders of truth about who God is. Putting truth to song helps it stick in our hearts. And that's why song is an important part of worship. And it's an important part of why we gather to be able to sing together and to preach to ourselves through song. There is a love for the great heritage of church music that we've inherited from our past generations and we return to sing hymns in a new way and also sing new songs to the Lord. Isaiah 42.10 says that we will sing a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. So singing is another one of these means of grace that are most effective in a gathering. I don't sing on my own. I don't like the sound of my own voice and you probably don't like the sound of it, especially when it's singing either. But I am blessed when we are singing together where my voice can be lost in a choir of far better singers. Putting praise to songs makes it a more powerful proclamation. And if you keep reading through Isaiah 42, it goes on to say, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains. So if you can't sing, then just go ahead and shout. God calls for whole villages and cities to sing from the mountains to the coast. And that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? If all of Halliburton, if every town and village was singing to God. So don't be shy when we are together. Sing out even if you sing low. Add your voice to our praise. And add your voice to the doctrine that's been put to music in your heart. Sixthly, we gather together to worship God and to edify one another, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to preach the gospel, to sing. And also we gather to give. We don't give because God needs something from us. God doesn't need anything from us and nothing we give goes to what he needs, but rather to what we need. Again, it is God's command that is ultimately for our joy and satisfaction. Acts 17, 24 to 25 says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gave gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So it's not that God needs it, 
but that God is honored when his people show compassion and worship through generosity. Our giving, just like all of worship itself, sends this message that God is glorious and that God is our only treasure. The purposes of God and the love of God are most valuable to me than what my offering could buy. Philippians 4.18 says, Our offerings are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God. And so every time we give, every time we show compassion by generosity, God is glorified because we are saying this is more valuable than anything else I could have. It is better to further the kingdom of God. It is better to glorify God. It is better to love our neighbors as ourselves, to give them what we would take for ourselves than it is for us to have it. And we do this as a gathering, as instructed. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says that the early church did this every first day of the week in proportion to their prosperity as they prospered. And so if you set your giving in your heart as a percentage, then when you have good years, you give more. And as you have bad years, you give less. But God will always be a part of your financial affairs. There will never be a time where you just say, well, I have absolutely nothing to honor God with, or I have absolutely nothing to give God, or that there's nothing in my life uh, that I cannot give up in order to show the value of God. By putting God's portion first and adjusting our lifestyle to what remains, it loosens our grip that the world would have on us. It loosens our grip on every other worldly treasure that it might have on our heart. Every way which God has called us to worship is for our ultimate good and His glory, including giving. And so we do it as a gathering as well to pool our resources for greatest kingdom effect. The offerings are brought into the treasury of the temple or the storehouse, as Malachi 3.10 says. Paul uses the Greek word thesarazun, which is also treasury storehouse so that it's collected together as the church to serve the needs of the church and the gospel so that everyone can benefit. And so we can think about our ministry partners in the community, like the Pregnancy Care Center and Mediba, and uh, we can think about our missions in the global sense. We think about Eden Village, we think about our missionaries in the Philippines uh, and in the Middle East and in uh, Nicaragua and other places around the world. Um, as we consider those things, these are places where our treasure goes in order to serve locally and globally. We think about the day camps that we run, we think about our children's ministry, we think about after-school programs, um, being able to have um, a mentor uh, for youth at the school, all of these things. We collect them together and gather as the church to serve the needs of the church and to serve the gospel so that the whole church and the whole community can benefit. That is the strength of doing it as a gathering. We also gather to pray, and I'm going to talk more on this next week because um, one time of prayer uh, is actually got it, has its own topic, and so we are going to talk more about prayer next week. But Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so we do a congregational prayer about halfway through the service. And sometimes that prayer is led by our host. Sometimes you're invited to join in verbally yourselves. But in either case, our expectation is that you're praying along with us, that you're lifting up your personal prayers, even as we pray corporately. We also have people available to pray with you after church and corporate prayer times through the week on Wednesday and 
um, at various gatherings. These are times when we can all be devoted to prayer together. So I'm going to talk more about prayer next week specifically, but we just want to see here that prayer is also a gathered activity when we gather to worship. And I just want to make a note here um, before we close, a note on the importance of worshiping everywhere, especially when we can't gather. So I started out talking about it's easy to take the church for granted. It's easy to let church slip away. It's easy, especially now when there's pressure on the gathering of the church. To, and it's hard sometimes to, to get back into the habit of gathering together. And so we've stressed today the importance of church as gathering. And that's been our focus today. But that's not to say that we don't also worship God through other times in our week, through every day of our week. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we can sing, pray, give, read scripture on our own, of course, and we should. In fact, everything that we do can be done to God's glory. Every action we take can either bring God glory, which is worship, or it can detract from God's glory. And so as we engage in activities through work or play or in our family relationships, we can always ask ourselves, how am I doing this to the glory of God? Can this be done to the glory of God? Can I make this a worshipful activity? Even when circumstances seem directly opposed to the expected method of worship, we can and still worship. What do I mean by that? In Acts 16, 23 to 26, um, Paul and Silas um, were thrown in prison uh, because they were gathering the people together for teaching and singing, essentially doing church. And so Paul and Silas are thrown in prison and they are actually chained to the wall. And it says that at midnight, as they were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them, suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the prison was shaken and the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And so here are Paul and Silas in a circumstance when it seems worship would be impossible and yet they are still worshiping God. Now I'm not saying every time you worship there's going to be an earthquake and chains are going to break. What I am saying is, is that we can continue to worship even when things seem to be against us. We are, of course, to glorify and worship God in all circumstances, but normally we can see that God has a special purpose in gathering together for worship. It's normal that God's people be gathered. And I just want to finish with some dangers in taking this aspect of corporate gathering or worship lightly or wrongly. If we get corporate worship long, wrong or we think that it is somehow optional, there is danger in that. The first one is, is that we are prone to wander. It is easy to get distracted. It is easy to get comfortable. And so we, as God's people, need to come back to the fold regularly, just like you would need to regularly visit the gym to stay in shape. If we abandon the gathering, if we are not shoulder to shoulder with our fellow sheep, and we are far from the flock, then it is easy for us to get lost, and we are an easy meal for an enemy that would destroy us. How many marriages, how many great life plans, how many opportunities we thought we could pursue on our own and we could do by our own power have turned to ash or been shipwrecked because we thought we could do it without the church. We all have prodigal hearts, but even when we find ourselves far from home and hungry, the Father is ready to take us back into his household of faith. It's better not to wander in the first place, but if you have taken church for granted, 
If you have not thought that gathering together in the church is important, you can always come back. God is ready to receive you. But that is the danger of thinking church is for us or that church is optional. The danger is we are prone to wander. Secondly, we are prone to consume. We have all grown up since the 50s in a consumer society like none other. The rise of modern advertising in the 40s and the success of democratic capitalism has been staggering in its ability to convince us that we are put on this planet as consumers and not as contributors. When we look at our gathering for worship, it's important that we see that it is as the Bible outlined it that we are all participants, that we are all contributors, that we are meant to sing, not just listen, that we are meant to serve, not just be served. We are meant to give, not only take. We are called to teach, not only be taught. And if we look at church as something that is primarily about us, then the danger is, is that we will be prone to become consumers, that the church will not be primarily about God, but it'll be about what we get out of it that we will not participate in church, but we will simply receive church. And that's a danger. So when I talk about one time of worship or one gathering of worship, you don't check this one off just by showing up, but by participating. Prone to be a consumer leads to a related possible situation, which is prone to criticize. And this is nothing new. It seems that where people gather to worship, they can just as easily gather to argue about worship. A surprising number of chapters of Paul's letters in the New Testament are devoted to correcting disagreements in how worship was supposed to be done. Correcting communion, correcting expression of gifts, correcting stingy givers, correcting disruptive speakers and teachers, teaching people how to trick how to pray, settling disputes about days of the week or modes of dress or what was appropriate when. <laughs> it seems every time we gather to worship, we seem just as prone to gather to criticize. We all have our preferences, and I'm sure Paul had his too, but worship is not about us. It is about a pattern of joyfully celebrating God and receiving his grace. And so if you look around you and you see joyful people and God-glorifying worship, then things are probably pretty close to how they should be. That doesn't mean you can't offer suggestions or better still offer to be involved in the area that you care most deeply about. But we have to be careful when we are not complaining, that we're not complaining just because we want what we want. Nobody is doing things because they don't want them. They're doing things if they're being done because they are means of joyful and edifying worship to those that are doing them or else we would do them differently. So that was a lot to cover today in terms of worship. After covering those, you know, three lessons on Jesus and him building his church, I just felt it was so important for us to revisit these five ones of how we engage in the body of Christ, how we engage in his ecclesia. The gathering is important. It's important that we worship God for all these reasons that we've talked about. So I just pray that as we um, move forward, we will remember uh, how critical this is, what we do, that we never take the church for granted and that we remember that it will continue and nothing will prevail against it. Let's pray. Father God, this has really just been a survey today because there is so much that your word talks about worshiping you. And so, you know, I confess and I, I even am sorry that we've had to cover it so quickly. 
but worship is just so key to our satisfaction in you, Lord. I pray that even by this means over the internet, that people have found your word uplifting and encouraging. I pray that as we gather on Sunday mornings in our socially distanced and 30% capacity way, that you are glorified there. I pray that everyone would have a turn, even if it's just once a month, to just come and worship together and to recapture um, what has been lost, and not just for themselves, but to remember that this is important for our testimony to you in the world. Father, I pray that we would continue to be a worshiping, joyful, satisfied church that drinks deeply at your mountain stream. God, you are good to us in so many ways. Worship isn't optional. Gathering to worship isn't optional. It is the very means of grace that you use to build your people and to share your gospel. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.